We're going to be in 1 Corinthians this afternoon, 1 Corinthians, very end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. Some years ago, a group of brothers and I were sitting in the study of my then pastor and current mentor, Mark Dever, just talking about life and ministry and other things that have been going on. And at that time, he had come under a great amount of scrutiny. There was a lot of chatter online. There was even some picketing in public on sidewalks, both in front of his church and elsewhere. Most of the criticism, though, had, was based off of a lack of information and presumption that led to conclusions that were altogether inaccurate, as is typically the case with criticisms on social media. And we sat with him and we asked him, Pastor Mark, how do you endure this level of criticism? There's just so much heat coming at you, it seems. It seems unjustified, and there's lies and slander and misrepresentations, people blogging about you and picketing you. And he said something to us that, you know, one of those things that when you hear it, you never unhear it. He said, brothers, we're going to give account to Christ, not the mob. And he was right. That's exactly the point that the Apostle Paul is going to make in our passage this morning or this afternoon. Here he is writing to a congregation that has demoted him in their eyes from their own preference for other leaders, more eloquent leaders, leaders that would be more impressive to the world. And how is it that the Apostle Paul then is going to address this proud congregation in the wake of criticisms that he's receiving? And he's essentially going to give the same counsel. He is ultimately accountable to Christ, not his critics, including those in the church. Really, he's going to say three things, three exhortations in the wake of everything that he's touched on up to this point. We're coming to the conclusion of a larger section. This whole first four chapters is really all about unity in the church. That unity had been disrupted by a kind of worldliness that had crept into the church, a desire to be impressive in the world's eyes, impressive according to what leaders they aligned themselves with. They had grown puffed up. They were, they were dividing from one another. They were in favor of one against the other. It was a divided church. And so Paul now is speaking into that situation. We saw last week that the Apostle Paul told them that you are God's field and you are God's temple and these leaders that you are exalting for the sake of your own self-exaltation, we're just slaves, we're just servants, we're farmers and we're builders. When we are one, we're no more or less significant than the other. We just do what God has told us to do and we look to be repaid by Him. So it's silly to ultimately align yourself with one leader against the other. But here he's going to essentially say three things. He's going to tell this proud, puffed-up church to give up wisdom, to give up boasting, and finally, to give up judging. Beginning in verse 18, I would 
invite you to stand with me and hear now the public reading of God's Word, beginning in verse 18, going all the way through chapter 4, verse 5. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, and as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of the stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things that are now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You can be seated. As I mentioned before, three things that we're going to see regarding Paul's response to this puffed-up church In chapter 3, verses 18 to 20, he's going to exhort them to give up wisdom. It's folly in God's eyes anyways, so he tells them to give up wisdom. Then in verses 21 to 23, the last three verses of chapter 3, he's going to exhort them again, and this time he's going to tell them to give up boasting. He says, give up boasting, for all leaders belong to you anyways. Give up boasting. And then in verses 1 through 5, the first five verses of chapter 4, he gives a final exhortation that build on the previous two, and he exhorts them to give up judging, to give up judging. In the end, only God judges justly. And I want to consider each one of these three exhortations in order, beginning there in verse 18 of chapter 3, give up wisdom. You may have noticed as we are reading that verses 18, 19, and 20 are a three-verse recap of all of chapter 1. We saw in chapter 1, verse 18, that the word of the cross is folly, it's foolishness, it's silly to those who are perishing. Just a handful of verses later in chapter 1, in verse 25, the Apostle Paul kind of summarizes his argument. He says, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men. In other words, If you were to measure the wisest of the wisdom of men, then it is folly compared to the foolishness of God. There's no comparison. So don't give yourself then to the world's wisdom. Give yourself to God's wisdom revealed in the gospel. And now here, what he's doing is he's essentially exhorting and warning this church that by courting the world's wisdom... You may think that you're wise, but according to verse 18, you're really self-deceived. 
No, in reality, those who are truly wise, he says, become fools in this age. And the key phrase there is, in this age. He says, all of your attempts at being acceptable to culture, to being wise in the world's eyes, to being impressive, will only last for this age, but will not go with you into the age to come. So give it up. It is worthless. It's not worth hanging on to. And why? Well, he explains in verses 19 and 20. He says, because the wisdom of the world is folly in God's eyes. That in the coming age, God is going to expose the world's wisdom for what it really is. It's sinful pride. In fact, all through the Bible, worldly wisdom and and human pride go together hand in hand, and and we see that in a handful of verses that he quotes here from Job 5 and and from Psalm 94. You see that there in verses 19 and 20. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. That's from Job chapter 5 verse 12. In that context, all the high and mighty people of this age are the ones that God is going to bring low one day. Their wisdom is like a trap under them. And so like a hunter with unsuspecting prey, God snares them with their own pride. And once caught, there is no escape. But then he cobbles together another reference. Verse 20, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. That the wise in this world think that they are smarter than God. We read this earlier from Psalm 94 in one of our scripture readings. They think that they see God for who he really is, but that God can't see them. Much less is he ever going to judge them. And that is what ultimately makes them fools. Not only does God see their every move, he knows and sees their every thought. Everything that could possibly indict them. Not just the things that the world can see outwardly. God sees things that nobody else can see. And it stacks up against them. Their thoughts, it says, are futile. That they have, in Paul's words, deceived themselves. Well, in both examples, in Job chapter 5 and and again in Psalm 94, the high and the mighty are laid low by God, while those who are humble, those who are lowly are the ones that are exalted. The ones that are seen as fools in this age are the ones that God exalts. Job chapter 5, verse 11, the verse right before the one that Paul quotes, says, God sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. God exalts those who are lowly and humble and meek, not proud like the world. Psalm 94, blessed is the man who you discipline, who you humble, O Lord, and who you teach out of your law. And so Paul is saying, if you want to be wise in God's eyes, you need to be content with being a fool in the world's eyes. Essentially means that following Jesus involves an exchange. You may remember in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, That if you want to gain real life, lasting life, then you have to be willing to let go of your life. You have to be willing to lose your life. 
But if you hang on as that which is of highest value to what everyone in this age thinks is real life, then you stand to lose it. And the same thing is true with wisdom. This is Paul's logic here. It's just the logic of Jesus. He says you're going to have to choose. You can choose worldly wisdom, and you can have all your friends and family members and neighbors think that you're impressively clever and attractive. You'll enjoy their good graces. You'll get invited to all of their parties. Or you can choose God's wisdom. And in so doing, you can risk looking foolish and silly and bigoted and unscientific in their eyes. So what is it going to be? That when someone that you're close to, a friend or a family member, maybe a sibling or a son or a daughter comes out as, as gay or transgender and tells you, if you really love me, you'll support me and approve of me the way that I am. That's a tough situation. You don't want to lose that relationship and you don't want to have them put you out of their life. You may be the only one that knows the gospel. I need to maintain this relationship to the best of my ability, you might be thinking. So maybe for the sake of appearing acceptable in their eyes, you deny God's wisdom. And you're more afraid to call them to repent than you are to call them by their preferred pronouns. And what about the Christian husband and the wife who desire to be missionaries? One or both came out of non-Christian families but believed in the gospel in college. And when they told their family members that they were Christians, you know, it was weird, but their family assumed, well, they're young, it's just a phase, it's their college religion thing, they'll outgrow it eventually. Sometime later, the husband is working for his dad in the family business, a business that his dad plans to give him one day. They have two young children, they've got lots of friends, a good church, a comfortable life. And then one day, a friend at church invites them to attend a class on world missions to learn about how God's at work in other parts of the world. Well, they weren't able to unsee what they had seen. They weren't able to unhear what they had heard. And so being compelled by what they had learned, they, they sign up then for their church's short-term trip to visit a, a supported church plant in an unnamed and unreached part of the world. And they come back utterly changed. They see the great need in the world and what God is doing, and they think, we want to be part of that. So some months later, after lots of prayer and, and counsel from their pastors, they decide that they want to be sent by their church as full-time missionaries. Now, before starting the hard work of support raising and language school, they've got to sit with their non-Christian parents, those who are grandparents to their children and explain, we've decided to leave the family business and to move to a third world country on the other side of the world to live among people who don't have the Bible in their language, much less electricity and running water, and we're taking the grandkids with us. And so through lots of tears, dad lets loose a string of rebukes. How could you be so irresponsible? This is the most foolish thing that I have ever heard. 
We tolerated all of your religious bull when you were in college, but you're not a kid anymore. It is time for you to grow up. Not only that, you want to take our grandchildren to the other side of the world in some place where, who knows, they might get killed or get diseased or who knows what. Do you know what this is going to do to your mother? Grow up. After lots of tears and pleading, are met with ridicule and threats of disowning, they drive home in silence wondering if they'd made a huge mistake. Paul says they're going to have to choose. They can side with worldly wisdom and maintain a respectable appearance in their family's eyes, or they can choose God's wisdom while being thought of as fools by those who are to love them the most. Now, most of us may not have those kinds of conversations, but you and I, we're still vulnerable, aren't we? Perhaps like the Corinthians, some of us are vulnerable to wanting to be, of wanting the kind of church and the kind of church leaders that the world is attracted to, the kind of church that your coworkers would think is really cool, the kind of pastors that your PhD professor neighbor would listen to and be persuaded by. Well, that's the issue here. They wanted to be respectable to Corinthian culture. Thinking themselves wise according to Corinth's standards, the Corinthians were boasting in leaders, leaders that they assumed to be impressive to the surrounding culture. Leaders like Apollos, with all of his philosophical grooming and with his eloquent speech, he could stand up with the greatest of the debaters in the city, but not that hick from Tarsus, Paul, who stumbles through all of his speeches. They were boasting in men. And so the Apostle Paul turns his attention in verse 21 and gives them a second exhortation. He tells them, you need to give up boasting. Now, think about this for just a minute. Paul is the one that set up this church. He's the one that endured persecution to get them started. He's the one that planted the seed. He's the one that laid the foundation. And they prefer this other guy named Apollos because he preaches more flowery sermons. Because he's more impressive to Corinthian culture. Apollos looks better and he sounds wiser according to all of the standards in Corinth. But Paul... Remember, he just taught us in earlier paragraphs that that doesn't matter at all. He says he and Apollos are one. One sows, the other waters. Neither one is more or less important than the other. Looking wise doesn't matter. Don't boast in men. Now, if I were the Apostle Paul, in my flesh, my next point would probably be why I'm better than Apollos. How dare you come at me like that? Yeah, 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 yeah. I get it. Apollos can shuck the gospel corn with the best of them. I got it. I'm a stuttering and stammering and nervous preacher. We all know that. I know that. But was he taught directly by the risen and glorified Jesus? Yeah, I don't think so. Game, set, match. Mic drop. Thankfully, Paul isn't like me. He doesn't boast at all. In fact, you notice here that he does the exact opposite. Let no one, he says, verse 21, boast in men. 
For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. He begins at the beginning of 21. He says, let no one boast in men. The kind of boasting he wants them to give up isn't just, I think I'm better than you. That was chapter 1. But a boasting in men that sets Christian leaders against one another. And then I want you to notice that his exhortation is not just taking the wind out of Apollos' cheerleaders, it's taking the wind out of his own cheerleaders as well. He's not cobbling followers to himself. He is leveling the playing field. So in the second half of verse 21, he alludes, isn't it great then? Isn't it great all things are yours? Isn't it great that Apollos preaches so well? Praise God. Especially in Corinth where people care about that kind of thing. Glory to God in his wisdom for giving you a man like Apollos to preach like that in a city like that. Be glad, Paul says, that he belongs to you. But notice he's not the only one. What about Cephas, the great celebrity disciple of Jesus, Peter, the rock? He's saying, you must have been so encouraged to have him come visit your church and teach you. Aren't you glad Peter, Cephas, belongs to you, just like Apollos belongs to you? Notice, Paul is not in the least threatened by any of these brothers. He's not worried that he's going to lose out to them. They're not his rivals. They are brothers and fellow servants in the field of, in, in God's field, builders, fellow builders in God's building, the temple. Well, earlier in chapter 3, Paul reminded them that they were God's field, that they were God's temple, they belonged to God. And so how is it then that God, how is it then that Paul helps proud people? Notice here, he doesn't tear them down. He doesn't ridicule them. He builds them up. Yes, Apollos is wonderful. I like listening to him preach. And Cephas, isn't he great? I've met him. He's a wonderful brother. In fact, you too, you're a really important person and you're a really important church. No, not according to worldly standards. Remember, you're foolish according to the world, but just think about this for just a minute, that God so loved you that he gave up his son to die and live again for you. Why? So that according to verse 22, life and death and the present and the future, all of it is yours because the one who owns it has come to live with you by his spirit. You're God's temple. But he says here, listen, here's the key to humility. Here's the key to getting rid of all the divisions and the factions that are, that are fracturing this church. This is not only of you, a true of you individually, but it is true for the Christian brother or sister that is sitting next to you. And it's true for the church down the street. God chose them just like he chose you. Jesus died and rose again for them too. And the Holy Spirit dwells in them just like he dwells in you, so that in possessing Christ, you, along with them, possess the one who has the keys to life and death, the present and the future. And so Paul's prescription for puffed-up Christians is to remind them and reassure them of God's love and care for them, not just for each one of them individually, but for every Christian and every true church, no matter how sinful or messy things get, that God loves you in Christ. 
He's saying that if we believe that, if we believe these things that we see at the end of verse 22, all things are yours, then there's no way we could ever boast in men or in any other worldly thing. Our only boast is Christ because we have all things in Him. So the next time I think I'm tempted to to think or say when I look at other churches or church leaders, well, my church is better than yours, I'm going to try to run through verse 22 in my head. And you should do the same. All things belong to me. All things belong to us, including their leaders and their growth and their fruitfulness, just like our leaders and our growth and our fruitfulness belong to them because we are all God's field. We all belong to Him, and it's all from and in Christ. Not sure we may differ in a number of ways, but in the end, I am for them for the gospel's sake. And so I want to be very, 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 very slow to judge. And that's Paul's final exhortation beginning in chapter 4. He says, if you give up the the human standard of wisdom, verses 18 to 20 there in chapter 3, then you can give up boasting about how your leaders measure up 21 to 23. And if you can give up the boasting about how your leaders measure up, then you can give up judging them according to how good they are according to the world's standards. He says in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, give up judging. The entire paragraph can really be summed up in his exhortation in verse 5. Give up judging because there's going to come a day when leaders are going to be judged. You can see that there. That if the standard is human wisdom, then anyone can judge a leader. There are all kinds of measures and and systems and metrics by which you can do that. Is he eloquent enough? Is he good enough at corporate leadership? Does he build a good enough platform? Is he built the kind of brand that I can be proud of and show off to others? But Paul's saying that these kinds of metrics are no good for that. Ultimately, leaders can only be judged by God. And so follow Paul's reasoning. In verse 1, first he says, Christian leaders are first and foremost servants of Christ, and they are stewards of the mysteries of God. They are stewards of the gospel revealed in Christ according to the promises of God in the Old Testament. Their primary job is to preach the gospel. So, in verse 2 then, the standard that they're held to is a similar standard as anybody that stewards Anything valuable, can they be trusted with it? Are they trustworthy? Do they handle it faithfully? Does their master, the one who gave them that stewardship, does he count them faithful? And so when it comes to spiritual success, beloved, listen to me, human wisdom, human and worldly metrics can't measure that. And this realization radically changes the way that churches relate to their leaders and the way that leaders relate to criticism. We see that beginning in, chapter, or in verse 3. And as we look at it, I would just ask you, have you ever known anyone who didn't care about what others thought about them? Or just at least cared very little? If so, then you know what kind of attractive quality that can be, one who's not captured by the fear of man. 
That person has a real freedom to act. He's totally unencumbered by the fear of what people would think or say about him. That he is perfectly content to let people criticize all they want because, as Pastor Mark told me many years ago, he knows that he's ultimately accountable to Christ, not to his critics. That kind of person makes for a really good friend. He's your friend because he decided to be your friend, not because he needs you to be. And you can trust him to stay that way. That kind of person also makes a good Christian leader. Look at verse 3. Paul says, your criticism is a very small thing to me. In fact, Paul says, I don't even judge myself. Why? Because in verse 4, he says, I'm innocent as far as I know. But that doesn't mean that I'm acquitted. That doesn't mean I'm not going to stand and give an account to anybody. No, he says, the only judge that ultimately counts is Jesus. And there's going to be a time in verse 5 that he is going to come and make everything known. Everything is going to be laid bare. And I want you to notice that these words in verses 3, 4, and 5 are the words of a man whose conscience has been totally set free from the fear of man by the grace of Christ. This is why God, Paul's saying, God as my judge is really good news. That is a freeing truth. Because my conscience is ultimately bound to my unchanging God, not to the changing opinions and fads of critics and cultures. But we'd still sit and wonder perhaps how remarkable it is that Paul is not terrified of of that day, not terrified of, of judgment. It almost seems that he's looking forward to it. And you would think he would be terrified by it, wouldn't you? I think I would probably be terrified having all my thoughts and intentions laid bare. But for Paul, it says, here it seems that it's a source of reassurance and confidence, not, not at all of fear. And I think I know why. If you think about it, it's because the judgment of other people well, that's what's really terrifying because it's impossible for sinners to judge justly. We're all the more ignorant than we think. We're not very understanding. We tend to be presumptuous against others. We try to connect the dots and draw conclusions that may be the furthest thing from reality, but we don't really care because we sound right. But praise be to God that He is better than us. And that is Paul's hope. He says, I'm confident that my reward doesn't ultimately come from the praises of men in this life. Oh, those are so fickle. Rather, in verse 5, on that day, each, including myself, will receive God's commendation. So when it comes to judging my ministry, Paul says, I entrust myself to my good God over other humans and even over my own judgments of myself. I can't even trust myself to judge me rightly. But God will just, he will judge justly because he's good. It's the same thing that we talked about last week, isn't it? From Luke 19, from the parable of the menace. That the, that the point of the parable is not so much what kind of reward will you get for for your service, the point of the parable is what kind of rewarder is God? He's good and he's just and he always do does what's right and he's full of grace and mercy and generosity. 
Paul says, eight days out of the week, I'm entrusting myself to him, not to you. I'm entrusting myself to God's opinion, not to your opinion. I love you, but I trust God to judge me more justly and rightly and fully than you can. And so he says, your being judged by you is a very little thing. Well, when we consider these final four or five verses, I wonder how these might apply to our own life and ministry to our own church. On the one hand, I want to begin with a qualifier because there are several senses in which congregations are to judge. We'll see later on in chapter 5, verse 12, you can look there. Paul says that we're going to judge, congregations are to judge those who inside the church. That are the members of the church living the kinds of lives that represent Jesus faithfully to the world, or they love their sin more than their Savior, and are they unwilling to repent from it? Well, churches have to make judgments over church members like that. One chapter later in chapter 6, verse 2, Paul says, you're going to judge the world and even angels, and so cannot a congregation ultimately make a good and final and godly judgment on minor disputes between two church members? One church member is defrauding another church member. He owes me 20 bucks. No, I don't. Well, let's sit down and figure it out, and whatever the church decides, submit to the church. Christians are going to judge the whole world one day. You guys can't decide who owes who 20 bucks? Don't go sue each other in secular courts. Take it to the church. Even more relevant to our passage, perhaps, there are ways that, that you as a congregation are called to judge church leaders. Do our elders fulfill and do, do aspiring elders, prospective elders, fulfill the scriptural qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and, and Titus 1 and, and 1 Peter 5, to name a few? Because if we don't, then it's your job as a congregation to not appoint such brothers to the office of an elder. If an elder consistently fails to live up to those qualifications such that his life is characterized by something other than those qualifications, well, then it's your job as a congregation not only to gently rebuke, but potentially even remove him. God has given you final judgment in those things. Faithfulness is at stake. And so in all of these ways, God has called you the members of CBC, to make word-centered judgments about the purity of the gospel itself. Has he abandoned the gospel and about the purity of its elders? Are they actively and openly and consistently living lives of sin that's detrimental to the church? But for us, your elders, our job is to lead and teach you and to make those, to help you make those judgments as faithfully as possible. But all of that is not ultimately what Paul has in mind here. Those are good, godly judgments prescribed by God's Word. Here what he's doing is he's exhorting the church to stop judging Christian leaders according to the standards of human wisdom. Is my pastor the kind of dynamic communicator that I love? Are we... Is he as savvy at organizational leadership as I've come to value in my professional life? Has he built the kind of brand that I'm proud to sell to my neighbors and friends? Does he check every one of my doctrinal boxes when it comes to my own pet convictions? Beloved, assuming godly character and gospel faithfulness, when it comes to how the leaders of this church teach God's word and manage God's house, I mean to say this in no self-serving way, but 
hopefully straight as you can see from the text, we are ultimately accountable to God, not to you. When it comes to the prudential decisions that are made by the leaders of this church concerning the direction when it comes to faithfully preaching the whole counsel of God's word and upholding the purity of the gospel, assuming godly character, assuming gospel faithfulness, we're ultimately accountable to God. Now, that may be jarring for some of you to hear. I was even telling Kathy, I said, you know, this may be one of those sermons that ends up getting me some emails this week. Because it's one of those passages that can seem almost self-serving for a pastor to preach. But beloved, let me tell you, what would be even more self-serving is to avoid preaching directly from this passage because it seems self-serving. I love you best by teaching you God's word and drawing out necessary implications from it for our, for our life as a congregation. And so this may be a jarring exhortation for some of you to hear. But it's actually the kind of church leadership that you need. It's the kind of church leadership that our church needs. It's not a heavy-handed or, or an abusive leadership. It's a godly and gentle and humble and prayerful leadership. But beloved, listen, you are not served well by men who are swayed to and fro by all of your myriad praises or criticisms. You're served much better by thick-skinned and tender-hearted leaders who stay the course over a long period of time because we're more concerned about pleasing God than you. And it's not that as leaders, we don't care at all what our members think. We have conversations with you all the time. We invite those conversations. And there is something for us, something for me to learn in every criticism. Even when those criticisms might be mostly ignorant or even just altogether unjust. But in this way, none of our elders are scared of receiving criticism. We welcome it because we know that God uses all things, including criticism, for our good and for the good of our church. There's always something that the humble man can mine from it for his own good. But what I want to communicate is that when our ministries are rightly related to God, human judgments... Your judgments, according to worldly standards, they're a very, very, very small thing. So all of our elders, beloved, they aim to be humble. They aim to be teachable men. None of us assume that we've got it all figured out, and we are the furthest from perfect leaders. And I hope that you're able to see something of humility in us as we engage and shepherd you. And we would ask that you would pray for us to that end. But sadly, the truth is that every Christian leader is... Likewise, vulnerable to becoming puffed up by praise and paralyzed by criticism. That if we can't see past the finite opinions of men to the final judgment of God, then we can enslave ourselves to making everyone happy and meeting everyone's expectations, which is impossible in this life. But beloved church leaders aren't the only ones who are vulnerable to the fear of man, to pride, Congregations are too, and that's who Paul is primarily addressing. He's talking to church members. And so what kind of judging is Paul telling them to give up such that he would be exhorting us as a congregation to give up as well? well we need to keep in mind that judging here is ultimately about judging faithful Christian leaders, godly Christian leaders. 
It's about scrutinizing leaders, not by Scripture, but according to human wisdom and worldly standards. It's about judging leaders not chiefly by their faithfulness to the gospel and the godliness of their life, but on their personalities or their platform or influence or the kind of church brand that we've built or organizational leadership or how much numerical growth we have or haven't produced or how you think that reflects on you as a church member. And whenever we do this, and I'm speaking of myself as well, chances are you and I likely don't call it judging, do we? We usually include a half sentence as we exercise our discernment about some of leaders' unfortunate weaknesses. Don't get me wrong, I love the guy, but. Or listen, I think he loves Jesus, but. And behind that but is hardly ever a godly concern for the purity of the gospel, but a self-seeking concern for preserving our own preferences, building our own influence, and steering the church in a direction that we think it should go. And here's the danger that I see in my own heart, and I want to encourage you to examine your hearts as well. It's when I get that kind of buzz from making myself look wiser than another Christian leader. But then that's the giveaway, isn't it? When the purpose of judging is to puff me up, to build my influence, to build my credibility, to affect the way other people see me. Paul says, when it comes to that kind of judging, you need to give it up. It'll divide the church and it'll rot your soul. So what might you do instead? Listen, I realize, like I said earlier, I'm not going to apologize for God's word. If pastors aren't going to teach congregations how to relate to pastors, then congregations are going to learn how to relate to pastors from something other than God's word. And so it's necessary as we go through the scriptures to be able to teach and apply these things. What, what might you do instead? I'm going to give you seven things, I think. Seven things. The number of perfection. First, leave church leaders, godly church leaders, to God's judgment, not yours. Leave godly church leaders to God's judgment, not yours. Don't pronounce judgment before God does. That's Paul's point in verse 5. Doing otherwise may assume that you know what only God can know and can judge only as God judges. We need to be really slow to assume that kind of prerogative on ourselves. Secondly, trust God to judge justly. Trust God to judge justly. Be skeptical of your own judgments. Know that God who knows everything is a good and just and a righteous rewarder. And he will judge better than you. Third, pray for your leaders. Paul says elsewhere, pray for us. Whether it's in your marriages or whether it's at work or with your friendships or in the church, it is hard to criticize those you regularly pray for. And I don't mean imprecatory prayers, prayers of judgment. Oh, that was a 
awkward members meeting. Rather that praying for church leaders assumes that God is better at steering godly leaders than you are. I've been a, not only a pastor, but a member of, of a church, and I know what it's like in my own mind, and my own heart to say, well, if, well, if he doesn't know, and, and if I don't tell him, and if, and if this doesn't get fixed, then this, that, and the other might happen, and, and we need to guard against that. And I'm able to see now how that was my own pride. And the fact of the matter is, is that God is at work in the leaders of our church even when you're not. Pray for your leaders. Fifth or fourth, know what the Bible says about church leaders. It's what we're trying to do here. That if you're ignorant of the biblical standards for Christian leaders in the church, then you are going to be more vulnerable to adding worldly standards that go beyond Scripture to cast judgment on whether they're good or not good, faithful or not faithful, worthy of following or not worthy of following. We want to bind ourselves to Scripture alone and to bind our leaders to it. So know what the Bible says about leaders, fifth. Assume the best about your leaders. It is baked into our culture for you to be skeptical toward authority and to assume the worst of leadership. I get it. I live here too. But not so with Christians. You serve yourself best, and we're able to serve you best when you assume that our chief desire is to honor God even when we make decisions that you might not prefer. Decisions that with perhaps somewhat more limited knowledge you may not have made. Assume the best. Sixth, make it easier for other church members to submit to church leaders. Make it easier for other church members to submit to church leaders. Backroom criticism is like a slow-growing rust that eats away trust between church leaders and members. Whether in small groups or over meals or coffee, speak in a way that not only assumes the best, but makes it easier for other members to obey Scripture and submitting to their leaders rather than harder for them to do so. Commend all that you can commend. Honor all that you can honor so that you might promote the unity of our church as fellow brothers and sisters aim to follow our church's leaders. Seventh, if you aspire to lead, if you aspire to be a leader, learn to follow. No group of elders, including our own, is looking around the congregation going, where's the guy that always knows better than us on everything and always has a concern or a criticism to offer? That's the kind of guy we want on the elder board. No, when it comes to prudential matters, support and encourage your elders. Let them know I am with you and I am for you for the gospel's sake. Be a champion for your leaders among our members. Doesn't mean that you're not going to disagree from time to time. Doesn't mean you might have some doctrinal differences on secondary or tertiary matters. Listen, those are conversations that we can have and that we invite and we want to have in a godly way, let me just say this. 
Pastors are willing to fight, but no pastor needs to love to fight. Otherwise, he disqualifies himself. And no pastor that I know, godly pastor, wants to do so. Your pastors need encouragement every bit as much as you do. I am for you for the gospel's sake. Finally, number eight. Sorry. Finally, consider all that you have in Christ. Puffed up pride in myself and in you cannot exist where joy in Christ abounds. Critical spirits, judgy hearts are quieted with those three words at the end of verse 22. All are yours. (laughs) It's all yours in Christ. You didn't do anything for it. He gave it to you. The Father gave it to you in love because he chose you before the foundation of the world and sent his own son to, to die and live again for you. And in living even now has sent his spirit to dwell in you to gift you and to assure you and to fill your heart with the Father's love, where if that's true then, if all things are yours, (laughs) then how can we ever begin to devour one another? It's all ours. It levels the playing field, and it's all of grace. Beloved, isn't this an amazing response by Paul to a church that had demoted them, him in their minds? It's the response of a pastor writing to a church that doesn't think he's so great anymore. There was no attempt whatsoever to get back on top. He diagnosed the problem. The problem is pride. He gives three exhortations. Give up that wisdom. Give up that boasting. Give up that judging. And then he builds them up in Christ. That's what good leaders do. That even when in the face of criticism, aims to give you Christ. Let's pray.